everyone. Uh, my name is Arijit Banerjee. I'm the vice chair of the IEEE Polytronic Society Digital Media and Education Committee and a faculty at the University of Illinois at Armana-Champaign. And today we have Professor Dragan Maximovich with us, and we will hear some fascinating insight stories about his life and perspectives while being in the field of bioelectronics for the last 30 years. We also have uh, Megan with us, who is helping us in recording this podcast. And also one of my colleagues is joining, uh, Professor Sheldon Williamson. Uh, Sheldon. Hi. Hi, this is Sheldon Williamson. Thanks, Arijit, and thank you, uh, Professor Maximovich, for taking the time to to interview with uh, the Pels Digital Media Committee. This is an, a true honor, and we look forward to 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 interviewing with you. Thank you. Uh, hello, Arijit and Sheldon. Uh, thank you for the introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to participate in the IEEE Pels podcast. This is exciting. Perfect. Uh, and uh, we are really eager to hear your experience working in the field of bioelectronics for the last three decades. So tell us a little bit about your experience working as a graduate student in Caltech. So you worked with Professor Middlebrook and Professor Chuk. So how was that experience? Yeah, thank, thanks for the question. This really brings up vivid memories as the experience of working with Professor Chuk and Professor Middlebrook at Caltech really, uh, really shaped my career in more than one way. I have a bit of a story of how I actually got into power electronics in the first place and how I end up, ended up uh, going to Caltech. Um, as an undergraduate double E student finishing my degree at um, the University of Belgrade in Serbia, um, it was a, mostly an accident. I got to work on a, on a project that involved designing and building um, an offline power supply. And I had taken a power electronics course, but that course was on thyristor choppers and, you know, commutation circuits, you know, all fascinating stuff, but has little to do with a flyback converter. So and there was no textbook on switch mode power conver conversion whatsoever. Um, you know, found a brief application note about a flyback converter, thought I understood the basics and then spent countless hours in the lab um, struggling to get this thing to work, uh, and, you know, base driver for a, a BJT power transistor was was a nightmare. Uh, my transformer had tons of leakage inductance. Had to add heavy snubbers to tame lethal voltage spikes. Burned uh, tons of transistors, and and converter uh, efficiency was was uh, was really poor, and my control loop was just barely working. Then one day I recall my advisor, Professor Marjanovic, dropped two heavy books on my bench uh, titled Advances in Switch Mode Power Conversion, Volume 1 and 2, uh, authored by Professor Chuk and Professor Middlebrook, and told me to take a look at those. And he also mentioned that Professor Chuk, who, by the way, graduated from the same university in Belgrade some years back, uh, he brought the books and, and he was going to give a talk that I should, should attend. Um, the, these books were actually collections of papers by the Caltech Power Electronics Group by that time. That was, you know, back way back, 84, 85, uh, including their seminal papers in the 70s on state-space averaging, converter topologies, the tube converter, modeling control techniques, and many other topics. And then reading through these papers was, was a shock. Um, it was a, a shock and a revelation of how much has already been done in the area um, how far back I was in my, uh, you know, trial and error attempts in the lab, uh, and and uh, Professor Chuk's lecture was was very impressive and memorable. You know, he included basics of converter analysis, 
And, and a particularly memorable moment was, was his explanation of ripple steering in a, in a tube converter using a couple of inductors. And that was animated by, uh, you know, he had, you know, slides overlapping that he was moving on top of each other to illustrate how by changing gap, you can, you can steer the ripple from one side to the other. And, and that really looked like magic. Uh, and, and not just that, he actually had a, a working converter with him that, that he was uh, showing up live in the in the lecture hall. So I got to talk to him and then after that I decided, well, you know, um, I, I really should, should try to get there. I applied and was fortunate enough to actually get accepted to Caltech to, to pursue power electronics. Um, but I, I came to Caltech with a little bit of a fear, you know, because I, I was under the impression that everything has already been done. So what, what am I going to con contribute uh, there? Um, so at Caltech, I took Middlebrook's course on, on analog design and Chuck's course on power electronics. Uh, regained a bit of confidence, was able to do fairly well in those courses. And just being able to consult with Millbrook and Chuk was, was pretty amazing, out of this world experience, really. Uh, but I should add to that that, that talking to peers and, and uh, you know senior grad students was equally important to me. You know, they overall had a great time learning how other students approach problems, ask questions, and exchange ideas. Uh, shared the, uh, the offices with Steve Freeland, Case Medley, Giri Vankataramanan. Uh, it was a great experience at Caltech. That's really fascinating. That's really fascinating. So your PhD thesis was entitled Synthesis of PWM and Quasi-Resonant DC to DC Power Converters. I'm just curious, how, how did you come up with the core ideas there? Right, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great. That also brings up my memories. So, so when I came to Caltech, it was maybe the first, maybe the second semester. I don't remember right now. Uh, Professor Chu had a, had a sponsor interested in, in an unusual-looking DC-DC converter, which had had a single transistor and a conversion ratio of d squared over one minus d, uh, where d you know d is the, the switch duty cycle, of course. Uh, and it looked the circuit looked like a cascade of a buck boost and a buck converter, but the components were rearranged so that that only a single active transistor was necessary. Um, and I, I got to build that circuit and, and try it out. Did some analysis with these continuous modes, which were kind of interesting dynamic responses also. But still wasn't too excited about the work because it I was just sort of applying known techniques at the time. Um, but on a side, this got me thinking about whether there are other ways to construct similar single transistor converters with qu quadratic conversion ratios. Is this the only one, or are there more? You know, it looked like something something to, worth exploring. So, so uh, you know, you put a buck converter, right, and you put another buck converter after that in a cascade. You know, get a d square, fine. I mean, that's trivial, right? And we actually there are good reasons to do that sometimes. Uh, but but that arrangement requires two transistors, two gate drivers, maybe a more complex controller. Uh, so I was looking for ways to do that with a single transistor. And, and I hate, you know, I don't want to admit how many times I tried and failed to rearrange the components in that in that buck plus buck cascade to make it work with a single transistor. Uh, and, and one day, you know, you kind of remember these things, you know, you were walking back home from the lab and I realized there was there was an, an odd arrangement of these components that I, I missed that, I, that could potentially work. 
and and you know of course went back and started sketching things and and sure enough actually had a, a working single transistor quadratic buck in a steady state solution with component stresses and so on uh, you know and was very very happy and eager to share this with professor chuk and and he was happy about it uh, but but in the process i also realized that that my you know the, the way i was doing this just sitting with a piece of paper and sketching circuits turning components around wasn't really very effective so so i i suggested to professor chu that i could focus on constructing these converters more systematically uh, including attention to to switch implementation as, as part of the process and and was very happy that he, that he was very supportive so I went on to study a bit of graph theory dug out some really pioneering works on on basic properties of dc dc converter networks by you know tom wilson had a paper in 1966 you know you should dig it out and, and read it it's fascinating and then there's dan Wallover's thesis at mit in 1969 so so all kind of really really fundamental works and then there was a more recent paper on synthesis of converters by a Caltech graduate, uh, Bob Erickson, who was at the time a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. So I didn't get to talk to Bob at, until much later, but just got to know him through his outstanding papers. Um, so anyway, I ended up, de you know, developing the the, the theory based on, on on these you know kind of fundamentals and an algorithm to enumerate all possible converter networks uh, with a given number of components and, and then further to automate evaluation of steady state characteristics and switch implementation requirements and, and so of course this is you know uh, regenerated all very well known basic converters but also uh, resulted in a number of, of uh, quote mark new single transistor quadratic converters and, and some interesting variations. So, so overall was was pretty satisfying. Um, and then further inspired by the work of, of a, a student colleague, Steve Freeland, who was completing his thesis at the time, I went on to add a more systematic way of turning pulse width modulated converters into a resonant switch or quasi-resonant converters. Uh, so, so that all ended up being my thesis. That's that's really inspiring uh, to hear the the background of how uh, how <laughs> the, that evolved. That's amazing. <laughs> so, I'm sure there were many challenging parts of it. And uh, were you ever worried about like this has always bothered me? Like, were you ever worried about any hypothesis which you had to spend a lot of time investigating while you were working for your PhD thesis? Yeah, of course you always worry about it. You know, you had the, you know, I had the, you know, come up with some, some properties of converters, um, and I was so worried that I was making some mistakes in the process that I hesitated to call them theorems, right? Because I, I was, you know, I, I thought it was, I had a solid proof, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I, I just called them properties in the, in the thesis, you know, just to kind of give you a sense of uncertainty that I have with, with my own work. But, but overall, the most challenging part really was was uh, you know coming up with something that I felt was sufficiently new and different, and, and that's really where you you, you need a, a good advisor to to help you calibrate the work against what what others have done. And that's 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 absolutely absolutely true. So uh, moving on to your professional career, you have been with the University of Colorado at Boulder since 1992. 
how has your own experience as a graduate student shaped your role as a phd advisor as exactly you were saying like your advisor really helps you in calibrating the contributions how has your own experience shaped your role as a phd advisor right right so so i had a great experience at caltech no question i, I really have been trying to recreate that experience for my students at at university of colorado boulder um you know ha having you know them have freedom to explore their own ideas you know maintain an open and collaborative environment it's, it's great to see students talking to each other that's how ideas are created uh and, and we all share passion for the area uh but as, as you say you know you're calibrating the expectations and, and making sure uh, students understand that what they're doing is appreciated and and has value and impact in the area is also also important That's great. That's great. Uh, how how do you see the field of power electronics has evolved over the last thirty years? Oh wow! Right. That's, you know, we can spend probably um, you know more than a few minutes on that. But, but well, let me take an angle to it. Um, uh, so well, first of all, you know, in in the in the early days, and we say before me, you know, in the seventies and so on, it wasn't really clear power electronics was. Uh, was an academic, it was an, was an area, not, not just academic, but it was an area in its own right. And, and uh, you know, over the past 30 years, there's no question about that anymore, I, I think. And then second, uh, uh, you know, a broader impact um, is, is very different now than what it used to be. You know, surely, yes, you know, 30 years ago, you, you would say, hey, you know, industry were interested in a more efficient or, you know, maybe a smaller, desktop power supply or uh, you know a, a lower level of harmonics at the inverter output and so on but but if, if you were asked the question you know how does this really matter for the society you know you would you have to come up with some creative ideas right but now it's totally different right you know we, we are looking into fairly realistic scenarios where you have the entire transportation uh, electrified, where electricity is almost entirely supplied by distributed renewables. Uh, there is no question about the impact of, of our area in, in a very broad uh, sense on the society. So, so that's, that's I think, the, the biggest difference now compared to, you know, the beginning. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it's like an amazing field to be in, absolutely. So over mm -hmm. this illustrious period, you have worked on numerous projects and ideas. And this is one of my favorite questions to ask anyone whom I want to talk to and mm -hmm. want to know about their experience. So right. can you briefly talk about one or two of those uh, that made you happy after solving it? It's like getting that feeling, ah, this is elegant and beautiful. Right, right. Oh, well, you know, that, that's uh, actually a difficult question, Rajit. Um, you know, elegant and beautiful is, is a very high bar. Um, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> if you get there sometime, that's, that's great, you know. You know but, but that, so I, I, I wouldn't put any of my work there. But, but uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you, you know, some answer, I guess. Uh, so, so we've done many projects around the topic of, of digital control of, of high-frequency switch mode power converters, and I think that actually led to some interesting modeling control and, and practical implementation results. So maybe I can pick a little detail out of that, you know, a simple idea from that line of work. 
so, so you know, th this is kind of a, a setting up things. You know, you, if you have a, a closed loop regulated power converter and, and it's operating at a given operating point, then generally speaking, the control action required to maintain regulation is going to be larger if the losses in the converter are larger, right? You need to you need more action to overcome losses, right? That's kind of a fundamental uh, issue in, in power conversion. Uh, so, so you know, starting from that basic idea that we um, we are aware of in in many cases, uh, you can think of an online efficiency optimization algorithm that could be based on not minimizing explicitly the losses, but minimizing the control action at a given operating point. And, and that would accomplish uh, indirectly minimize, minimizing the losses without the need to do any additional sensing other than what you would really need to do anyway to, to perform regulation. And so such indirect uh, online efficiency optimization algorithm is particularly easy to implement in a digital controller because the, the control variable, you know, say duty cycle or whatever you're using is readily available. And, and you can easily also tweak various timing or modulation parameters that can lead to a, a higher efficiency at a given operating point. So, so my PhD student at, at the time, Wahid Yusuf Zadeh, he demonstrated this approach to optimization of dead times in, in converters with synchronous rectifiers. And it was one of these moments where you, you know, sit, um, you know, um, or stand next to a lab bench and you look at a scope screen and you see how this thing works and it looks like a little bit of a magic. So it's, it's pretty enjoyable. And and I recall Wahid's uh, APEC paper presentation where he actually, he actually recorded a video of the scope screen and was included, you know, he included that in his presentation. Uh, you know, how these dead times converge to optimal values and how efficiency goes up. Um, and we thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> Maybe that not at the important. level of, of elegant and uh, beautiful, and, but, but, but pretty close. Uh, in, no, in, I think that is really elegant. <laughs> no, that's so Dragan, yeah. Dragan yes, Sheldon here, I've been listening, you know, Arijit and Dragan, I've been listening in and this is so fascinating. I just want to chime in here. Uh, following up on that, Dragan, like, we've heard the good stuff. I was just wondering to myself, and Arijit and I, you know, being uh, relatively younger faculty in the power electronics field would love to know, as well as some of our speakers, wh what are some of the uh, exciting projects that you've worked on in terms of applications since we're on this topic? And what are some of the memorable burns, like failures of some newbies who make mistakes, you know, uh, maybe even as young professors in power electronics starting out, we may make some mistakes uh, in, our, in our approach. Do you have any advice for something that some memorable failures that you went through during oh, your right, research? Right, right, right. I no, mean, no, no, uh, it, just, it just occurred to <clears throat> me, you know. So it would be nice for our speakers to, uh, to, to uh, for our listeners to really understand the value of the failure so that we can, you know, lead a path to success. Right, right, right. Okay, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very broad and, and, and it's also difficult question, I'd say. But, you know, I started off by saying my, my introduction to power electronics was really through a, um, a pretty significant failures, you know, trying, you know, trial and error type to, to build this flyback converter, which uh, which fascinated me, but it was, you know, really unsuccessful in the process. Um, and you know, maybe uh, you know, make maybe make make a note on on that. You know, you, 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 we we often in power electronics, 
you know, get into this trial and error type uh, 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 thinking, right? You know, and and that's understandable because these these things tend to be complicated, and there are a lot of things that we have to abstract in the modeling process and so on. I'd say that trial and error is is actually a, a good sign. That means that you know there is an opportunity to learn something new, um, to find out what people have done. Um, uh, to to solve the issue you're facing, or perhaps you're actually on the path for discovering something completely new. So, so don't don't uh, think of trial and error as being a failure. Although you know, of, of course, if you have students in the lab doing just that and not realizing that's an opportunity, that that's actually a yeah, you know where we, where we don't want to be. Um, but but in any project, and you know, you ask me about the failures. You know, you, the the number of failures outnumbers uh, the the number of successes by by many orders of magnitude. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> of course, of course. You, know, you start off with some vague idea or perhaps maybe a concrete idea and, and you realize that there are things that you have neglected that are going to bite you. And, and, you know, but that's always, as I said, a, a, more of an inspiration rather than a failure. You know, you, you move forward then and see how to make use of what you've learned. That is indeed a great question, Selden. Excellent. I thanks, thanks, Tarang. And that really opened our eyes as well. You know, looking at opportunities in the failures is there's nothing like it, and that motivates that, yeah, our grad that, students that, as well. That's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So uh, let's take a little bit uh, shift from our uh, research topics and the things we were discussing and let's move on to something which is very close to our committee, which is of course education. And you have been a pioneer in polychronics education. So please, if you can share some of your perspectives about pedagogy specific to polychronics, that is critical to keep the field exciting and we keep inspiring the future generation. What are the things you think will be is important uh, from a pedagogical perspective? Right. Th thanks, uh, Arjit. I, I would not say a pioneer, more an enthusiastic follower. Right. And, you know, so. Um, right. So, so power electronics is interesting also because it it combines so many different aspects of electrical and other engineering disciplines. Right. And, and uh, you know, sometimes maybe we are overwhelmed with all these other things that are coming into to our area. But I think what is important from a pedagogical point of view is to really recognize and emphasize in, in our work our own fundamentals, right? You know, and we want to start from that and then reach out to other areas as needed. Um, and, you know, the, the other point is that the power electronics is, is about about the experience in the lab, right? And experience in the lab is is really what uh, we want to emphasize when when we teach power electronics. And and the way we do that at the University of Colorado is is that we have students build stuff from scratch. You know, we don't have setups where you just hook up wires and measure something. That's nice to illustrate things, but but we really want to have the experience of of going from you know just components and putting them together and figuring out how to do that well and have a rewarding experience in the end. You know, the reward of having a converter that works well is, is really the, the best learning experience in, in power electronics. And in terms of getting students excited, frankly, that's becoming easier and easier. And it's related to what we talked about a little bit earlier of, of, of the broad impact that power electronics has these days. 
um, it, it's not difficult to get students excited about you know working on something that's related to electric vehicle or or solar panels or um, you know things like that. So Dragan, Dragan, on that point, I had uh, one question. Like in the in the teaching field of power electronics, it's just a follow up or a continuation. Do you think there may be like a change in the syllabus? Do you foresee? What, if that change is there, what would you change in in power electronics engineering as a field? Right, right. So, so power electronics is actually very broad, right? You know, you have right. Uh, right. You know, maybe in our work, you know, we have a lot of emphasis on on maybe um, you know DC DC converters as opposed to uh -huh. maybe larger power grid uh, uh -huh. tight converters and so on. So, so you have you know different uh, emphasis in different groups and and of, and of uh -huh. course uh, it's you know I think we probably don't necessarily want to uh, insist on covering everything uh, possible uh -huh. under the sun at some light level. It's, it's probably better <laughs> That's right. to dig, dig a little deeper in the area that you're passionate about. Sure, sure. And, and you know have have those fundamentals then transpire to students being able to do many other things in power electronics. And, you know, I think we are lucky that power electronics is so uh, so rich in, in different aspects and, and different uh, dimensions, right, and, and connections to many other areas. It's, it's pretty right. fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's growing as we speak. I mean, it's really, right. you know, as you, as you rightly said, different institutes, different centers, rather, of power electronics across North America, at least, yeah. that we know, and Europe, we have our own focus areas and we teach our courses in that field. Of course, of course, and that's great. You know, that's actually... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good uh, response. Thank you. That's great, uh, Sheldon. So moving on to our next question, uh, Dragon. So this is one of my, again, one of my favorite question. Your and Professor Erickson's book has been widely accepted as one of the foundational textbook in power electronics. And uh, this is an internal inside question here. Can you please share some inside stories, memories as the book was being written? Right, right, right. Okay, so first of all, let me let me just emphasize that the textbook credits really should go overwhelmingly to, to um, uh, Bob Erickson. Uh, he really came up with a scope and a focus on, on power electronics fundamentals, uh, presented in a rigorous and accessible manner. Um, and and I, I shared the same philosophy and I joined in as a contributor to, to the second edition. Um, and, and one thing that, that maybe people don't quite know is that a good portion of the textbook actually came in from from our notes at Caltech, you know, both Bob and I graduated from Caltech. You know, we we took uh, power electronics and, and and analog design courses from Middlebrook and Chuk, and and that greatly influenced, you know, how we we write papers, how we write the textbook, how we do everything, and and so in 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 both content and and style, the the book is heavily influenced by uh, by Middlebrook's and and Chuk's work. Um, the, and the other side to it that, that's also, I, I think, interesting is that, you know, we, this, this textbook material actually came out from pretty significant experience of teaching the materials, you know, over some number of years. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think it's very difficult to put together a textbook without having had experience of teaching or learning from from that material. So, so there were a lot of iterations on various aspects and details that we spent 
countless hours on of you know whether we should say this first or that first uh, uh, that came in from how students reacted to the material. Um, so uh, of course I'm happy that that over the, the the past two decades the textbook has had some some impact hopefully. Um, and, and I'm also happy to to take this opportunity to mention that we have recently turned in our long overdue third edition to the publisher, so it should come out sometime soon. Oh, I can't wait to see that edition. Uh, but th that's indeed absolutely uh, true. Like, I, I, as you said, like the storyline is always the most important piece. How do you tell the story to the students in terms of making it a convincing case that, yes, this is a logical flow of development of the topic. So I think that's right. exactly what right. the book captures. And, and, the, and this actually went back and forth, right? You know, you have, you know, you try out to explain something in a certain way and, and you get some feedback that this wasn't clear and, and then you change it next time. And and out of those iterations, you get something that looks like a textbook. That that's really what our process was. Yeah, I I can totally see this as a machine learning problem to some extent. Like I can keep <laughs> learning this, and this is my subject, and okay, I keep improving. Yeah. <laughs> I have it's to throw in that term. More of a random walk, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, perfect. But I, the next question is a little bit tricky one for uh, for you. So, since you have been a, such a you have such an illustrious research career, having worked on so many research problems and as well as on the teaching side, so what gave you the highest sense of satisfaction in your professional career so far? Uh, a research problem that you solved, or when you see so many students and uh, uh, universities across the world use your and Professor Erickson's textbook? Oh, that, that's one of, you know, maybe an easier question. Right? It's not either or, really. Uh, it, it's a, I'd say it's both. You know, of course, you have the experience of, you know, learning something new is, is always rewarding personally, but then sharing that learning um, is, is, uh, has a multiplicative um, effect and, and impact. So, so, of course, you know, one doesn't go without the other. And and I think you know overall objectively the the, the impact on, on on students is really more important I would say in, in the longer run you know that that's how um, you know new ideas are created not by necessarily me but by other people who may have had touch with the textbook or whatever um, that that's how I see things. Perfect, perfect. Uh, so. Moving on from teaching to a little bit more towards a service. So you have seen the emergence and exponential growth of IEEE Polychronic Society. How has been this society helped in you in your professional career? Right, right, right. So so ju just a bit of history, right? So volume one of the IEEE Transactions and Polychronics came out in, in 1986. And that was the year when I joined Caltech to pursue my PhD. And the, the IEEE Power Electronics Society was officially formed in 1988. And that same year, I, I joined IEEE and, and PEL. So, so I'm not going to claim that I'm the first, uh, um, you know, member of the society, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, among, among the first, uh, you know, the first year. Uh, so that was a year before I completed my thesis, right? So in a sense, I, I see myself as, as an early beneficiary, really, of the work by the the real pioneers who came in before me and established technical and professional foundations of power electronics as an important area that's worth pursuing. And of course, that had, uh, you know, really extremely important impact on my career uh, in terms of personal growth and recognition. 
but also in, in you know having a sense of community and you know, keeping connections and benefiting from you know, the tremendous advances we've seen in the area across the globe has been fantastic. That's that's amazing to hear that. Um, uh, so one more question, and this is again going back to our a uh, little bit about instruction education piece. And this is basically triggered because of the situation we are in right now because of the pandemic. So this pandemic has forced power electronic instructors, educators around the globe to come up with solutions for the remote instruction. That is happening right now. Like we are working here at universities, like all over the place. How do we ensure that we can keep giving the same level of uh, instruction to our uh, students? And you have been heavily involved in Coursera, which was one of the earliest platforms with similar intent. Uh, uh, we would like to hear your perspective perspective about how we can get students engaged even in a remote learning environment and still provide a hands-on learning experience. As you said before, that, that these two are very, very important pieces as we go into the um, uh, instructional mode for power electronics. Right, right, right. Yeah, thanks for this question. This is really important. Right? So, so aside from, from pandemic, really, you know, it, it had nothing really to do with, with our vision of how to really uh, pursue uh, some of the different modes of, of teaching and learning in power electronics. Uh, you know, way back in, you know, we, we've been doing these uh, distance courses for a number of years. And but in, in, in fall of 2013, uh, Bob Erickson did an experiment of putting together an introduction to power electronics on Coursera. That, that was in 2013. You know, I, I actually couldn't believe that was so long ago. And, and this experiment was uh, highly successful. You know, it was, we were amazed to see uh, thousands of enthusiastic, highly motivated students from around the world engaging in these short, to the point video lectures, um, non-trivial machine gradable assignments that approach the difficulty and rigor of, of traditional, you know, on-campus assignments. So these are not watered-down contents, or, or uh, you know, we're not asking students to check mark things or, or have multiple choice questions. They, they have to answer questions in a, in a, in a, you know, in formulas, right? You know, that are machine readable, and and uh, it's pretty amazing. And and then also being able to engage in discussions in online forum. You know, if we have a critical mass of a sufficient number of students taking these these courses, they, they get to talk to each other. And I remember earlier I said how important it is to really have that environment where you can talk to other students, you know, generate ideas. You can see that happening on a much larger scale in, a, in an online forum environment. It's quite amazing. You know, we were really, really surprised pleasantly by that experiment. So we followed that with a, with a series of short courses. Uh, that's now, you know, it's called Power Electronics Specialization on Coursera. That that has had more than 20,000 students enrolled. You know, not just clicking on, on on the page, but actually enrolled in pursuing those courses. And then moving beyond that, our university, you know, and in part because of this these successful experiments, uh, has actually started an online four-credit master's degree program. It's called MSEE. That, that uniquely features performance-based admission. You know, you, you can start your MS degree without, you know, doing any of the, you know, paperwork. You know, you just enroll, and if you do well in the course, you get admitted. And of course, Power Electronics is a big part of, of our um, uh, MSEE program. And then these days, I'm actually working on, on completing a course on input filter design. We'll have a sequence of courses on, 
on advanced modeling and control techniques in polyelectronics already over the summer. Um, and and you know a little more on the engagement engagement part. Uh, we we put together a capstone design project where we have experimented with um, an open-ended design problem and, and how do you do that in a in an online environment so so we tried out uh, peer grading and and uh, you know you you have to do it very carefully so there has to be a very um, you know logical rubric to it but once you do it uh, which i think was was really done reasonably well uh, it has a tremendous benefit, you know, that students actually enjoy seeing each other's work, uh, making comments about each other's work. Again, it's a level of engagement that is, uh, you know, ideal for creating new ideas and, and learning, uh, and which can be done in an online environment, perhaps even better than what we are doing traditionally in, in a classroom. Uh, so we plan to expand this offering. You know, this pandemic situation has made us, uh, you know, think even more along those directions, our university sort of uh, feels like visionary of you know <laughs> having some of these things done beforehand. Um, but uh, but you know th there's certainly value to exploring those ideas further and and how do we actually organize a lab experience uh, in uh, you know in, in an online course? Uh, we are thinking about those ideas right now and we'll be trying out some of those in our lab on campus uh, you know this coming fall so so dragon i had a question follow up actually about the labs um i know i'm going to teach a power electronics fundamental course in uh, fall in our university and i uh, was wondering like how do students now come in or do like how does labs work because you know power electronics is such a field Almost all courses that we teach in power or even electric machines, fundamental, needs hands-on lab. Like, I mean, you can't, right. I don't know, it's really tough. And uh, what is the strategy that you guys are using? Right. I'm cheating a little bit here. I'm trying to get an answer from a guru of power no, electronics to, yeah, you to know, so, adapt to yeah. my own university. So if you can no, throw no, some course, light out. You know, so, so, so to be honest with you, in, the, in the, the, the pandemic situation with distancing and so on, we, we don't have ready answers to that. You know, but what we're doing right now is actually rearranging our room so we can expand our lab space and so we can have some distancing. Uh, uh, right, enabled right. in the process, right? So we, okay. you know, our, our lab is organized so that you know you you have, as I said earlier, you know we don't have labs where you come into your station and connect two wires and measure something. That, that's not what we do. Right. Uh, in in the lab in the fall, our students are actually you know again starting from scratch. They're going to build an, an offline LED driver, right? And and you mm -hmm. do that, um, you know, through a, a series of steps uh, that are mimicking the design process that you would see in a sort of in an industry environment um, that you know it requires physical presence right and and of course you know use of, of more sophisticated equipment it's difficult to do that um, you know you can't do it at home very easily with maybe some inexpensive you know usb kits and so on which we will actually try at, at undergraduate level um, so so all we can come up with right now is really distancing you know expanding the lab space to allow um, students to be scheduled so that we avoid, um, you know, contacts. Oh, 
Right. I think that's the best way to go. Anyway, uh, Dragon, uh, moving on and probably, you know, we are uh, reaching almost time here sure. in our interview. It was so fascinating chatting with you. We can talk all day. But uh, basically, I wanted to ask about what advice would you have like, for somebody who's starting out in the power electronics field? Right, right. So I, I think engage with your, you know, mental peers, colleagues, co-workers, with the community. You know, best ideas in power electronics are usually generated in an open, open and collaborative environment. You know, that, that's that's my experience, and and that's I think the case. Um, you know, enjoy time in the lab. Uh, you know, the where, where power electronics is really immensely gratifying when it works, on those rare occasions where everything does click. Um, and uh, you know, seek challenges and take pride in your work. And and I'd say on top of that, you know, take some time to go back and read through some classic papers. You know, you, you want to kind of meet these people through uh, the way they wrote things. And and some of these early papers are quite fascinating. I, I, that's what I would say. Right. I think you know many many people lose focus in the in the sense that they you know uh, research students just go and say hey you know new research students they go at the last two three years papers and they read it the most recent ones but they lose focus about the classic uh, methods and you know things that were actually set up to to prime you know power electronics right, so that's good right. advice yeah I yeah. totally see what you're saying well thank you thanks for the answer sure sure. Well, I think I think we are pretty close to our end of time. I think we can keep continuing this, and I'm sure, uh, Dragon, I'm going to catch you again at a conference, and I'm going to ask you a hundred million more questions on on similar topic. I think these are all fascinating stories, and getting to know your experience, how you evolved in the field, how your experience shaped your you. I think that was just inspiring, and I think it was great to hear about your your uh, truly fascinating experiences. And the best part, to be honest with you, uh, what I really enjoyed listening to is your humility. So thank you so much for yeah. for being such a uh, such a humble person. In spite of uh, despite having such accomplishments, you being so humble, that's really inspiring for us and also for a lot of future generations to come. Is that uh, I, I think there was a fantastic statement made uh, by um, um, uh, Feynman about uh, Einstein, where he said like uh, Einstein was a giant, and it's very hard to keep both the head uh, on the cloud and the ground on the feet uh, and Einstein was one of them who were able to do this and I think I, I mean that's really what I would like to sum up with that, that was really inspiring to me uh, because many times we just get our head on the cloud and, and we don't keep our feet on the ground right. yeah yeah th thank you Arjit and, and Sheldon it was really my pleasure and and I, I, I understand we, we actually went over time a little bit uh, we, we wish we actually had more time so we can ask you guys some some of these questions. And, and indeed, what really makes me optimistic about the area is, is how many young, enthusiastic people, such as your, you know yourselves, um, uh, who are really opening new directions and moving the area forward. So, so I hope uh, we hear from some of you and them in in future podcasts. You know, to look for for some young stars. Thank you, Dragon. Thanks. Thanks for your encouragement and blessings, really. That's all we really need, you know, to fill in the big shoes moving forward in this field of power electronics. I mean, we look up to pioneers such as you and several others who, you know, we follow. And it's really an inspiration. And it was uh, it was fun chatting with you, to be honest. Excellent. Thank you so Thanks much again. for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Thank you. Absolutely. So for all our listeners, it is the aim of our Digital Media and Education Committee to bring you more such podcasts that are inspirational, informative, and useful. Our aim is to have these podcasts available to you via our IEEE Bells website, as well as on Apple Podcast, Teacher Podcast app available on cell phones. So please stay tuned for more. Thank you so much.